During the time of Moses, there was this Egyptian empire that was very famous, and if you've had the chance to go to Luxor or Cairo or the pyramids of Gaza, you will know that it was a, like a, a really big uh, and important uh, civilization. And, and part of their, uh, um, of their thinking and religiosity was uh, funerals, and they had very elaborate funeral practices. They thought a lot about the end of life and what happens in the afterlife. And they had very specific expectations of what the next life would be. They had um, uh, the idea of eternity uh, reverberated in their souls and they looked forward to it and they had uh, essentially come up with some ideas of what it would look like. And if you were influential, if you were rich, if you were royalty, then uh, you got to dictate what your funeral would be like. And uh, so the rich and famous would ob ob um, often have burials that went along specific lines. And so you would have the embalming of bodies, uh, uh, what we know as mummies. You would have impressive tombs. Um, if you've ever been to the Valley of the Kings, you'll know the vast expense and architecture that went to burying uh, the pharaohs. Um, you'll know that um, if you've ever seen like a, um, a sort of Indiana Jones type thing in, uh, in sort of uh, Egyptian graves, they were full of artifacts and you would expect all sorts of riches in there as the person going into the afterlife thought he would take all these emblems. And there would also be inscribed on objects and walls, various blessings and curses. If you know the story, um, I think it's of uh, Tutankhamun's uh, grave and the, uh, the, the idea that, that, that the people that, that broke into that may have been subject to curses and uh, 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 death. And, and, and so these ideas of blessings and cursings were very much part of how the Egyptians understood the afterlife to be made of. And amongst all these other different things, you would find with uh, the very sort of top tier royalty, you would find along with them something called the Book of the Dead. Now, it wasn't something that was the same in each instant. Basically, it was like a collection of personalized magic spells. You paid like the priesthood of the time, um, and uh, these uh, curses and blessings would be uh, part of that, and they would help the rich person uh, navigate the underworld so that they could prosper. So that just as they prospered in this life, they would prosper in the next life. And now one of the most complete um, books of the dead that are around is the Papyrus of Annie. And if you go to the British Museum now, you can uh, uh, find uh, this most complete book of the dead in existence. And it has this rather interesting um, excerpt. Um, this is a, um, a sort of a, a copy of part of uh, this papyrus. And it says this, Sing a hymn of praise to Ra, and say homage to you, glorious being. The regions of the south and the north come to you with homage, and send forth acclamations at your rising on the horizon of heaven. They saw Ra as embodied in the sun. And so the sun's appearance on the horizon was 
uh, thought to be a manifestation of Ra. And it goes on. You illuminate the two lands with rays of light. O Ra, the divine man-child, the heir of eternity, self-begotten and self-born, king of the earth. For the Egyptians, Ra was the king of gods. He was the god of gods. He was the big daddy of all the deities that they acknowledged. And he was seen supremely in the sun as it rose in the sky. The sun was understood to give light and life that was the most significant entity in their lives. And so they saw Ra in the sun. And his power and prominence was such that he's the one uh, that so much magic and religion and superstition was bent towards. If you were going to have magic spells and blessings and curses and superstitions, Ra was kind of the big daddy of them all, and he was the one to appeal to above all the others. And we need to take this in mind as we head to the penultimate of the ten plagues. And if you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, and it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. Everyone say felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. Everyone say darkness. darkness. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, go and worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not our hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshipping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. And Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never again appear before you. And so superficially we have this ninth plague and it, it seems the most benign of all the other plagues. It doesn't really threaten anyone's life or limb. The river of blood right at the start, it, it, it threatened thirst and drought. The boils, they threatened people's health. The locusts promised hunger. But darkness seems fairly innocent. We can handle a bit of darkness. 72 hours of darkness doesn't seem too bad. But this is a different kind of darkness. It is a pervasive darkness that falls across the width and breadth of the most powerful empire of the land. And this is a land that worships the sun. And so there's a poignancy and significance here that is easy to miss. 
in this moment, Ra, the god of gods, the most significant god of their pantheon, is suddenly nowhere to be seen. Where he was reliable, he has become defeated. He is impotent and helpless. This bizarre, unknown, uh, esoteric Hebrew God that they call Yahweh is suddenly come from nowhere and seemingly defeated their God of gods. And there's a mysteriousness. I don't know if you noticed it, but I got you all to say out the word. There wasn't just an absence of light. This doesn't seem to have just been a solar eclipse. It says the darkness could be felt. Now, we don't know what this is, and I love all the theologians speculating over to what darkness that could be felt would feel like. But it seems to be this darkness was, uh, had a tangibility and a physicalness to it that made it oppressive, that made it weigh down, that made it um, uh, something that could be sensed. There was a heaviness to it. This was a miracle over three days where somehow the Egyptians could feel a heavy darkness on their backs. Now, there is a a building up. If you uh, just dip into the Bible for verses of encouragement or sort of lucky dips, then um, sometimes you can... Uh, uh, struggle to get the the wider picture. But we read uh, recently of the plague of locusts. And in the plague of locusts, we find that the ground is covered, that you can't see the ground because of all the locusts that have come in. Now, we have this escalation. This plague of darkness is so thick that not just the land is blotted out, but people are blocked out. You can't see anyone else. Suddenly, it's not just the land that they're estranged from. It's suddenly they're estranged from each other. The eye couldn't see anything. There was nothing for the eye to focus on and find relief. And the only way they could move about was through groping and stumbling. Nothing could be seen. And equally mysterious... The Israelites joy enjoy the grace of God. There is some illumination there, that they have something that they can see by. And again, it's not sort of articulated clearly. We don't know exactly what it is. And, and sometimes people struggle when they read the Bible and they want to pin it down and say it's this. But there is a light in the Israelites' camp in Goshen that allows them to see while the Egyptians are cursed with Blackness. This darkness and light is a very familiar comparison in the life of a Christian. If you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 5. You are all children of the light and children of the day. Everyone say light. Light. Everyone say day. day. So you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake 
and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a little bit of gospel here. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. And then this lovely flourish as he's talking about night and day. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you're doing. And as Paul writes to these Thessalonians, he hints or uh, reminds them of hints from this Exodus story of themes of darkness and light. And he says there are people that live in darkness and people that live in light. Everyone may look the same. You may look across a crowd and see everyone the same. But God sees them as some living in light and some living in darkness. There are those that darkness. And he dismisses them. They are not doing well. They are either asleep or drunk. These are nighttime activities. You know, if you don't know Jesus, you are in the darkness. You are either asleep, you are either in a stupor of tiredness or in that stupor of inebriation. And if you are in these states of sleepiness and inebriation, you, you have a, uh, a struggle to comprehend things. I don't know if you've ever been woken up suddenly or sort of slept walk. There is that uh, uh, inability to grasp reality when you're sort of coming out of sleepiness and, and uh, uh, you struggle to think things through clearly. And uh, Paul says that is what it is to be in the darkness. They don't think clearly. They're in a stupor. They are drunk. They are stumbling around in confusion. They don't know their God. And when they talk about spirituality, they are groping for it blindly. They don't really know what they're talking about. And if you talk to people today who don't know Jesus, that is what they're doing. It's kind of made up on the spot. It's like a hodgepodge of different uh, um, fortune cookie Uh, um, bits of wisdom that they've received that they cobble together and without Jesus when you live in the darkness um, you end up self-destructing because you can't see the light you can't go forward you don't know what is healthy you don't know what is right and you are bent on this self-destructiveness and you blindly collide with other people it is a mess living in the darkness. You do not comprehend it because you are asleep or inebriated. But it is a mess and it is a a terrible thing to look on. But it is easy. It is easy to be asleep and it is easy to be drunk. You know, there there is no no, uh, sort of inward looking or anything else because you're just living life as you see best. But the consequences are dreadful and eternal. If you live this life in darkness, that darkness will be perpetuated for eternity. And it is a dreadful curse. 
But those that have been rescued by Jesus, those that have been chosen for grace, those that have their name written in the book of life, they live in the light. And that is a different experience altogether. Living in the light is a completely different um, livelihood. We live with an awareness of God. We live with an awareness of God. We see creation and our eyes are lifted towards heaven in thankfulness. We feel in our hearts love and forgiveness. We sing these songs and go, yeah, I recognise that. I recognise those truths about Jesus that we sung earlier. I need my sins forgiven. I need to know that I am worth something to God. And you are living in the light when you see these things. And we also are alert to the value and consequences of our attitudes and behaviour. It's not we do whatever we want and to hell with the world. We know that we have a duty and a privilege to behave towards others in a certain way. And more than that, it's not just how we are perceived, it's how our heart is. We need to check our hearts in how we live. That is what it means to live in the light. That is what it means to be sober. We see other people around us as image bearers of God. They are not tools to be used for our advantage. They are not rubbish to be kicked away. Everyone we meet is an image bearer of God. And they're opportunities for us to demonstrate God's love that is in us. We see while others are in blindness and darkness. It is harder to be awake. It is harder to be sober. It is harder to live this life where we know our actions have consequences, that we have a God above who loves us and is um, uh, watching over us. It is harder to behave when we know that we've got the Holy Spirit in us and we need to uh, work with him rather than against him. It is harder to live when we know we've been forgiven everything and we're expected to do the same for others. Only those born again know what it is to live in the light. Everyone else is in the darkness. And it is those people that are living in the light that we come alongside in Sunday meetings, in home groups, in prayer meetings, in hopefully treat, uh, trips to the beach as well next Sunday. And when we meet together, we who live in the light should be helpful to one another. That was kind of Paul's parting statement in that passage. Build each other up. When you who live in the light come together, you should help and champion one another. You should make the person sitting next to you's life easier. They should be thankful for God for what you invest in their lives. And so when we meet, let me encourage us all that we inspire each other on a Sunday morning rather than grumble with a list of all the problems that we have. When we meet on Tuesdays in home groups, let us be good at forgiving rather than counting the wrongs done against us 
in that room. And when we meet in prayer, let us be generous rather than mean. Let us see how much we can give out rather than how much we can preserve for ourselves. Because that is what living in the light means. You and I are children of the night, children of the day. And we need to make sure our lives are lived soberly and alertly. Now, as the people of the land reel back because their God of God's Ra has been shown to be impotent. And uh, he has an inability, apparently, to do anything. So Pharaoh, this lord of the land, worries about this disaster. You know, uh, everything is going to end if you can't see. And so um, Pharaoh, again, calls in Moses into his presence. And he goes, you know what? Finally, I will let you go with all your people. It's not just the men, not just the women, not just the children, but the whole population, everyone who is called an Israelite may go and have a festival to the Lord. And, and finally, uh, Pharaoh re releases them and says, yes, go. You can be gone. And it's, it's something that's been building up. And, and finally, Moses has got this request through. But the livestock, Pharaoh says, you, I just want to keep the livestock. And we don't, doesn't say explicitly why. And it's either Pharaoh wants to cling to a little bit of wealth and not lose everything, or that he's hoping the Israelites will be forced back as they run out of food uh, and sustenance. Um, uh, but whatever it is, uh, Pharaoh just says, you can all go, just, just leave your wealth behind. Just leave your livestock behind. I wonder how you would have felt. You don't know what's coming. You've had this darkness that can be felt, and you can feel uh, your God trumping all their gods in turn. And suddenly your people can go, and you'd be like, you know what, this is it, let's go. I've, I've had enough of this. This looks like victory to me. You know, my, uh, my wife and my children can come with me and we can praise the Lord. This is victory indeed. But Moses knows it's not victory. He knows that uh, in the presence of the Lord, they're going to worship by the sacrifice of animals. There is going to be this awareness of sin and, and paying for it and looking forward to the sacrifice of the Messiah to come. And so it looks like victory, but it is not quite victory. And so Moses refuses. And I think there's a word here for some of us this morning. I don't do this often, but I do. I think some of us are settling for a good outcome rather than God's intentions. You know, we just, oh, that was good enough. And I think God is saying, good enough is not good enough. That I have a victory, a divine victory, a complete victory for you that you need to look forward to. That you shouldn't uh, 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 just let it go with a partial um, victory. But you, you, you'll need to look for the fuller one. You need to wait for the complete victory. And so Pharaoh, the probably at this time the richest and most powerful man on the earth, he loses it. This guy who's got vast armies at his beck and call, who's got wealth unimaginable, who has got all these resources at his beck and call, 
he loses it before this Israelite, this peasant, this murderer that doesn't have any power at all. And he goes, Moses, you go, and uh, you're never coming back, and if I see you again, I am going to kill you. And Moses just oozes coolness. He oozes patience. And while the Egyptian king loses it, Moses deals with it calmly and collectively. Wealth, power and significance in this life do not bring you neither real spirituality nor true inner peace. It is so easy in this world of advertisements and capitalism to chase after power and influence, to chase after material possessions, and to chase after improving our situation. But this story of Moses and Pharaoh makes it very clear that having everything doesn't touch the heart. That inner wholeness that weathers trouble, that deals with frustration, that overcomes storms. It's a matter of our hearts rather than our circumstances. The Beatitudes that Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount talk about the poor of spirit and humble, the people that are well aware of their um, uh, smallness in this world and saying it's them that see God most clearly. And I think it's very true that the least privileged amongst us may well be the most godly because they see things that those of us that have riches and power and influence don't see. That they see the, uh, uh, the true source of inner peace, of inner calm, of contentment is not out there, but it is a right relationship with God in our hearts. And I want to turn finally to James chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible, turn there. This is uh, Jesus' uh, sort of half-brother speaking. It says this, James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient then, brothers. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See the farmer, and he waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm. Everyone say patient. patient. So be patient. It's an exciting word for a Sunday morning, isn't it? Be patient. Stand firm. Because the Lord's coming is near. This is very common, this next bit. James knows church all too well. Don't grumble against one another. Don't grumble when people don't behave or act like you want them to. Don't grumble if the music is too high 
or too low. Don't grumble when people fidget or don't grumble uh, when their children don't behave as you see, as you think they should. Don't grumble when people spend their money differently to how you think they should. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. There's this wonderful bit in Revelation uh, where Jesus is knocking at the door and he's waiting to come in. And you're like, yes, Jesus, I want to let you in. And then this picture here James gives, the judge is at the door. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to keep that door closed for a little longer. Perhaps put a few more padlocks on just to keep him out because I can't stand the judgment of God. I know my life is in a real wreck and I can't bear God's all-seeing light permeate all through my life. The judge is standing at the door, so do not grumble against one another. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or earth, or by anything else. All you need to say is simply yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. James points to the farmers and he goes, these guys have to be patient. They plant their crops and then they have to let the weather get on with it and let the rain fall and the earth uh, um, provide nutrients and those seeds will grow. And he points to Job, who was struck by all sorts of curses as the devil sought to sift him as wheat. Everything was taken from him. It was taken from him to prove that the devil was right, that only those in privilege can, are, are rich enough to have a faith. But it proved him wrong. Everything was taken away from Job, but Job was okay because his inner heart was good. He related to God through uh, his heart rather than what he had and his good circumstances to the ignorant, to the impatient, and to the outsider, a believer can look passive. You can look powerless, and you can look pathetic. What are you doing? Praying. Do something about it. What are you doing? Fasting. Get on out there and fix stuff. What are you doing coming into a church meeting and listening? What good is that for the world? But this is the mystery of faith. There is a patience. There is even an inactivity that some of us don't have the faith for. We can't stop and allow God to work. We must work and try and strive and do things in our own strength. And God says you need to have faith and you need to be patient. And sometimes that means being passive. We who know Jesus know that it is God that gives and takes away. 
It is reliance on him, regardless of all the things that are swirling on around us. That is the only way for our souls to live in the light. So this morning I invite you as I close, give up your anger. Give up your impatience. Give up your restlessness. Give up your cautiousness. Give up your indignation. Your worth is not at stake in these trials and tribulations and perseverances you're enduring. That's already um, marked out. Time is not slipping through your fingers. You are not missing out. Patience is a quality that James brings to us here and says, you guys need to be patient. God will bring his plans to bear in your lives. He determines the rhythms of your life, the peaks and the troughs, the highs and the lows. And when we just fall into step with him, everything goes as he ordains. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we, we look forward to the exodus of Israelites from Egypt. We look forward to that final releasing. But Lord God, we, we take on the lessons that lead up to that. God, we take on the lessons of darkness and we are reminded that we are children of the light. And I pray that we would live like that. That we wouldn't live like all the people lost, groping around and not knowing what up is. But Lord God, we would live in the light of your revelation. Live in the light of the beauty of Jesus. Live in the light of uh, the Holy Spirit. And Lord God, I pray that as we live today and as we live out the rest of our lives, that we would be good at being patient. That we would be good at falling into step with you. That Lord God... Um, our demands for this and that would fade as we realise a heart right with you is the most important thing and the only thing that will lead to peace. Lord God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.